Could you turn your Bibles, please, to Hebrews chapter 1? And I'm, I'm just going to read verses 1 and 2. But we'll be reading quite a few verses uh, during the course of the message. So we'll just start with verses 1 and 2. God, who at sundry times and in divers manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds. We'll ask the Lord to bless our time in his word. Father, we do thank you for the opportunity to have spent time around the table your table. We thank you, Lord, for the hymns we've been able to enjoy. And now as we sit under the sound of your word, we, we pray, Lord, that we might be able to focus on it and your Holy Spirit might take uh, just, uh, it's just some element of the message that might be an encouragement if that's what we need. We pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Now today is my very second message uh, in my new series on the Epistle to the Hebrews. I wonder how far I'll, I'll have come along when the Calvins come along next after a year. We might get up to chapter 2 by then. Uh, but, <laughs> but this is the, just the second message. Now in my first message, I simply looked at who wrote the epistle. I'm not going to go over that again because that was last time. Today I want to look simply at who was the letter written to. If you write a letter, you write it to someone. So who was this epistle written to? Now the author doesn't tell us anywhere in the epistle who he was writing to. When Paul wrote Romans in chapter 1 verse 7 he wrote to all that be in Rome. So we know it was written to Romans. When Paul wrote Colossians in, in chapter 2 verse 1 he wrote to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ which are at Colossae. So we know who he wrote that epistle to. Uh, James, it was the same for James, James 1.1. 1, 1. We read to the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad. Uh, each of these writers, authors, uh, they tell us who they wrote their epistle to. And you know, it's good that we can know something about who an epistle was written to. Uh, it gives us context, gives us context for what was written and why it was written. And it's especially important with the, with the epistle to the Hebrews. When it comes to Hebrews, though, we aren't given any of this information in the epistle. The writer doesn't tell us who he wrote this epistle to. But we can look for clues, and that's what I'm going to try to do today. Now, the first clue is found in the title of the book. Fancy that. Uh, it's very deep, isn't it? Uh, very clever. Uh, I just look at the title of the book. It might give me a clue. And so my first point for today is the title. Now, if you look at the title of this epistle in your Bible, the title given will depend basically on the publisher of your Bible. I did a quick search of all the Bibles in my house and I found a variety of titles. And now they are all King James Version. They're all KJV. But this is what I found. Uh, my Nelsons, this is it here, uh, the Nelsons have as the title of book, the book simply The Epistle to the Hebrews. 
Uh, the Oxford Bible said I'd have at home. The, uh, the, the, the title is The Epistle of the Apostle Paul to the Hebrews. Uh, the Thompson Chain Reference Bible, The Epistle of the Apostle Paul to the Hebrews. Uh, the 1611 KJ version I have at home, The Epistle of the Apostle Paul to the Hebrews. Uh, the little Bible that my wife uses sometimes, by, published by Broadman and Holman, they just simply have Hebrews. I don't know what you've got in the title of your book, uh, but it's all King James Version, but there are differences in the title. The fact is that the title of the epistle wasn't written by the author, and therefore it wasn't inspired. And that's good because I would have missed out some of the inspiration because I didn't get all the the title that other books, um, publishers gave. Whatever copy of the King James Version you have, you won't find this information about who it was written to in any of the verses of the book. The title is given by the publisher and the inspired word starts in chapter 1, verse 1. The, the inspired part of the epistle starts with verse 1, God, who at sundry times... From there, right through the epistle, we aren't told who wrote the epistle. Now, you might find at the end of your King James Version, it'll say it was written by somebody to somebody, but again, that has been put there by the publisher, whichever publisher it is, and it differs in every copy. <coughs> so, the title of the, given by the publisher isn't the inspired word. Now, some of these titles, as I just pointed out to you, some of these titles attribute this epistle to Paul. But in my last message, I showed that there is no definitive evidence that Paul actually wrote Hebrews. There's some possible uh, evidence, but overall, there, are, there is no definitive evidence that Paul actually wrote Hebrews. Um, for example, in the 13 epistles that we know he did write, he always gave his name, and he, he was often in the very first verse. In fact, some of them was the very first word. Paul, Paul, Paul to this church or to that church. Paul an apostle. So in the 13 epistles we know he did write, Paul always gives his name. The first translator to attribute this epistle to Paul in his title was someone in the 2nd century AD, probably a man called Clement of Alexandria. But in some of his other writings, Clement even said, even he admitted that only God knows who wrote it. If, if God didn't tell us who wrote it, then we clearly don't need to know. The titles weren't inspired, but one feature of, that they all have in common, you'll have it in your Bible, I have it in mine, in the title, they all say that it was written to the Hebrews, to the Hebrews. So who were these Hebrews and why would theologians and Bible publishers think it was written to this group called the Hebrews? Well, the first mention of a Hebrew is in Genesis 14, 13. I'll just read it where it says, And there came one that had escaped and told Abram the Hebrew. Abraham was the first person in the Bible called a Hebrew. Uh, we aren't told why he's called a Hebrew. Uh, it probably was because one of his ancestors was a man called Heber. Uh, another possibility people think is because the name Hebrew means uh, one from beyond and Abraham was the man who came to Canaan from beyond the river. 
Abraham was the first person in the Bible to be called a Hebrew. After that, Joseph was called a Hebrew by Potiphar's wife. The Israelite women in Egypt were called Hebrew women. And in Philippians 3.5, Paul called himself an Hebrew of the Hebrews. So Hebrews are, are basically the descendants of Abraham, uh, today probably known as Jews. This epistle is believed by many, including Bible publishers, to be a letter written to a Jewish congregation, hence the title, The Epistle to the Hebrews. Now, in my last message, I showed that this isn't a general epistle like Peter's. Peter made it clear that he was writing to all those are scattered abroad in all these different countries. This was, Peter wrote to, to a, a general epistle. But we made it, I, I showed you uh, through uh, the, the verses in, in the book of Hebrews, I showed you that this was, epistle was written by one man to a specific or particular group of people, probably a church. One man written to a probably a church. Now, where that church was located isn't known either. The author doesn't actually tell us where that church was. Now, some have suggested Rome, others Jerusalem, others Alexandria in Egypt. So think anywhere in between. That's quite, an, so obviously there's no clear evidence, even in the epistle, uh, where this church was. We aren't told the address. So it clearly doesn't matter. We don't need to know. It was somewhere in the empire. There was a Jewish church or a church who, with people who had come out of Judaism. And so the title gives us a clue as to who this was written to, to a Jewish congregation. Now, the second clue as to who it was written to is what I've called the topics. And I've called it that because it rhymes with title. Okay, uh, but we're looking at the contents of the book. Give us, give us the contents of the book, the topics that, that are raised. Give us a clue as to who this was written to. And this epistle was clearly sent to a Jewish church or a church that had extensive knowledge of the Old Testament. Now, that could have been any church in the empire that Paul had started. Many of the churches that Paul had begun had come out of a synagogue. The people, Paul went to the synagogue, he preached that Jesus was Messiah and basically the synagogue split and, and those who believed Jesus was Messiah, they were the foundation of a new church. Those people would have had a tremendous knowledge of the Old Testament. These were Jews or God-fearers who had practised Judaism. And they would have had an, a strong understanding of the Old Testament and the law. The content of this epistle points to a Jewish audience, people who knew the Old Testament and they knew the law. I mean, the very first verse refers to the Jewish fathers and prophets. It says, God, who at sundry times and in divers manners spake in time past to the fathers. What fathers were they? The patriarchs, the Jewish fathers, by the prophets. Which prophets? The Old Testament prophets. So right at the beginning, it's speaking to, about the fathers, the Jewish fathers and the Old Testament prophets. Now, chapters 1 and 2 are about angels. You might think, well, what have angels got to do with the Old Testament? Well, there was a, a, a view that the angels were associated with the giving of the law. And so this is why it was important to, to speak about the angels. Have a look in Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 2. Hebrews 2 and verse 2. 
For if the word spoken by angels was steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation, which at first began to be spoken by the Lord? And so the chapters 1 and 2 really are about angels, and probably because of their association with the giving of the law. Uh, chapter 3 speaks about Moses. Chapter 3, verse 2. Who was faithful to him that appointed him, as also Moses was faithful in all his house. So here's a reference to Moses, and he speaks about what they would have known about Moses. Chapter 4 is about the Sabbath or about rest. Chapter 4, verse 1. Let us therefore fear, lest a promise being left of us of entering into his rest, any of you should seem to come short of it. The mention of the Sabbath is there in chapter 4. So the chapter 4 is about the Sabbath rest. Chapters 5 to 7 are about the high priest. 5, 6 and 7. Many references to the high priest. Have a look in chapter 5, verse 1. Chapter 5, verse 1. For every high priest taken from among men is ordained for men in things pertaining to God that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. So chapter 5 to 7 are about the high priest. Chapters 8 and 9 are about the Old Testament covenants. Have a look in chapter 9 verse 1. Chapter 9 verse 1. Then verily the first covenant had also ordinances of divine service and a worldly sanctuary. And it goes on to talk about the tabernacle. And so chapters 8 and 9 are about the Old Testament covenants. Chapters 9 and 10 are about the Jewish sacrifices. Have a look in chapter 10, verse 1. For the law, having a shadow of good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never, with those sacrifices which they offered year by year, continually make the comers thereto perfect. So chapters 9 and 10 are about the Jewish sacrifices. Now you all know the contents of chapter 11. It's the chapter of faith. It's the hall of faith. These were all heroes from the Old Testament. And so the list goes right from Adam all the way through the Old Testament heroes of the faith. And so the bulk of the topics referred to in this epistle point to a Jewish audience. And this helps us understand why the author wrote it and what, um, why the author wrote it and uh, what he wanted them to know. So, this was written to a Jewish audience, perhaps a, a church. Who were, so who were these Hebrews? And why did the author write what he did? Well, it seems that they were being tempted to turn away from Christ and turn back to Judaism. This helps us to understand why he wrote what he did. And so having looked at the topic, uh, sorry, the title of the topic, I want us to, to focus now on this temptation to go back to Judaism. So let's, let's first learn what we do know about this, this, uh, these Hebrews uh, from the epistle. The first thing is we know that they were saved. Uh, have a look in Hebrews 6, 9 and 10. Hebrews 6, 9 and 10. But beloved, so the writer uh, 
this group of people, he calls them beloved. We are persuaded better things of you and things, things that accompany salvation, though we thus speak, for God is not unrighteous to forget your work and labour of love which ye have showed toward his name in that ye have ministered to the saints and to minister. So here the author was persuaded that these people showed the fruits of salvation. They had demonstrated Christian love and they had ministered to the saints. And so we get the picture here is of people who are saved. Uh, but, but secondly, we, we understand that they were persecuted for their faith. Let's go to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews 10, 32 to 34. Hebrews 10, 32 to 34. But call to remembrance the former days in which after ye were illuminated, so you can get the picture there, they were not saved, and then they were illuminated, ye endured a great fight of afflictions, partly whilst ye were made a gazing stock, both by reproaches and afflictions, and partly, partly whilst ye became companions of them that were so used. For ye had compassion on me and my bonds, and took joyfully the spoiling of your goods, knowing in yourselves that ye have a heaven in heaven a better and enduring substance. Now the author makes reference here to them being illuminated. And I get the picture of that they'd seen the light. They'd seen the light of the gospel and they had obvious, obviously believed the gospel. And because of that, they had been persecuted because of their faith. And if you read through any of the epistles of the New Testament, you find, often find references to the persecution that comes uh, upon those who have been newly saved, perhaps out of a pagan environment or out of a Jewish background. And so they had been illuminated and they had been persecuted because of their faith. They had a fight of affliction. And that again testifies to their salvation. They'd heard the gospel, they believed the gospel and they had been persecuted for it. And perhaps it was because of this persecution that they had failed to grow in their Christian lives. So these people were saved. They had undergone some persecution because of that. And because of that, perhaps, they were stunted in their spiritual growth. And you all know these verses, Hebrews chapter 5. Hebrews 5, 10 to 12. called of God and high priest after the order of Melchizedek, that's Christ, of whom we have many things to say. We want to tell you lots of things about Christ being our Melchizedek, of whom we have many things to say and hard to be uttered, seeing you're dull of hearing. For when for, for, when, for the time you ought to be teachers, you have need that one teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God and become such as have need of milk and not of strong meat. So these people who had been saved, they'd been persecuted, but they had become stunted in their spiritual growth. Perhaps because of the persecution and their spiritual immaturity, these people were tempted, as one author put it, to turn away from Jesus and the new covenant and revert to the Mosaic law and the old covenant. They were tempted to turn away from Jesus and their new covenant and revert to the Mosaic law and the old covenant. 
Now, in the Roman Empire at this time, Judaism was actually a legal religion, whereas many of the Christians were actually being persecuted for their faith. It wasn't a legal religion. So perhaps these people thought it would be easier to go back to the synagogue, uh, even if they were there as silent believers, to go back to this religion where they won't be persecuted, uh, where they'll be able to, you know, to be an easier life. But, but also... It was the unbelieving Jews who were the first to persecute the church. And so when these, these people were saved out of a synagogue, started a church, uh, those people who had been in the synagogue who didn't believe Jesus was the Christ, they became the persecutors of the early church. And so perhaps some of these people just thought they just gave up the fight. It's too hard to fight these people who keep trying to destroy us. So perhaps because of the persecution and because of their spiritual immaturity, they thought it would just be easier to go back to their old Jewish ways and not to hold on to Christ. And that's why there are many warnings in this epistle to not go back to their old Jewish ways, but to hold on to Christ. Have a look at here in chapter 6, verse 1. We just read about them being babes instead of where they ought to be teachers. They, need to, they, they needed, still needed milk instead of the meat of God's word. And then he says in chapter 6, verse 1, Therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, let us go on, let us go on unto perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God. And there are, there are these encouragements right through the epistle to go on, to hold on to Christ, not to go back, warning them not to go back to Moses and the law. It's because these Jewish believers were tempted to go back to Moses and the law that the author argues right from the beginning of this epistle that Jesus is better than Judaism. You can see it was written with all this Jewish content. We can see that these people were saved out of Judaism. We see that they were being persecuted because of that and tempted to go back to Judaism. But to go back to Judaism is to turn away from Christ. And so right from the beginning of this epistle, the writer urges them not to do that, to hold on to Christ. Let's go back to Hebrews 1 now. Hebrews 1, verses 1 and 2. God, who at sundry times and in divers manners, spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom he hath made also, whom also he hath made the worlds. The prophets and the fathers were under the old covenant. But now God had sent his son into the world to bring in a new covenant, the new covenant. And from these verses on, the author went on to show us that Jesus is better. Now that's, that's the word of God's word, better. Jesus is better than anything under the old covenant. Have a look in verse 4. Being made so much better than the angels, as he hath by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. Jesus is better than the angels. Uh, Jesus is better than the Old Testament prophets. He's better than the angels. Uh, he's better than Moses. Jesus is a, 
a better high priest than Aaron. Uh, Jesus is the mediator of a better covenant. Uh, Jesus provided a better sacrifice. Jesus can assure us of a better hope. All right, through the, uh, through the epistle, uh, the, the writer is saying Jesus is better than this one and that one and that one. If you go back to Jesus, you're going back to something that is not as good as you can have with the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is what the author of the Hebrews wanted to impress upon his Jewish readers. But you know, this wasn't just for them, the Jewish congregation that he was writing to in that day. There is an application for all those of any generation who come to Christ. Now, there was an application for the Jewish believers in that particular church the author was writing to. They were being tempted, maybe because of persecution, to go back to Judaism. So the author urged them simply, don't do it. You've got something better. But there was also an application for the Gentile churches in the first century because, uh, as you know, we've, we've been through the book of uh, the two epistles of Paul to uh, the uh, Corinthians and you'll know that through that first century there were these Judaizers, people coming into the churches, even the Gentiles' churches, and telling these people that they, in order to be saved they have to be circumcised and they have to keep certain parts of the law of Moses. And so these Judaizers were infiltrating the churches uh, even the Gentile churches in that first century. Paul had to write to the Galatian churches about these Judaizers. Perhaps the author to the Hebrews uh, could have been countering the same false gospel in the early church that Paul had when he wrote Galatians. And so there is an application for that particular church. There's an application for, for, the, for those first century churches facing Judaism. But there is an application here for Christians of any age who were tempted to, to syncretize Judaism and Christianity. And it does happen. Uh, you know churches even in our city that have done exactly that thing. The Seventh-day Adventists church is the perfect example with its Sabbath keeping and its Old Testament dietary laws. Now, there's supposed to have been a movement uh, where people believe in grace, salvation by grace, but I won't believe it until they keep come to church on Sunday. But the Seventh-day Adventist church with its Sabbath keeping and Old Testament dietary laws is a modern-day example of syncretizing Judaism and Christianity. The Catholic Church is uh, the most classic example of, of blending the old and the new covenant. You think about it. The Pope is known as the Pontifus Maximus. Pontifus, priest, Maximus, high. He's the high priest of the Catholic religion. The Pope is the high priest of the Catholic religion. The Lord Jesus Christ is our high priest. They have priests, we have pastors. They have an altar, we have a table. Their priests sacrifice the body of Jesus every time they celebrate their Eucharist. They're sacrificing the body of Jesus. They hold up there and say, behold the Lamb of God, and they sacrifice him on that altar. They sacrifice the body of Jesus, but we simply remember him. They require certain works to be performed for a person to be saved. We preach justification by faith without the works of the law. Catholicism combines Jewish rituals and practices with Christian truth. This is a false religion that clearly ignored the warnings of Hebrews. 
Maybe they didn't read that part of their Bible. The teachings and warnings found in this epistle are as relevant today as they were when they were written. And that's what we're going to work through in detail as we work through this epistle today. It's just one, just the beginning of who this was written to and who it was written to. It's important to know the context of the epistle. And so we're going to work through it in the coming days, but the best thing for us now is knowing that Jesus is better than anything that Judaism can offer. The best thing that we can do is to look look under Jesus every day because he is the author and the finisher of our faith. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that uh, we live in this, uh, this age after the Lord Jesus came. We thank you that the law and, and the covenants, uh, uh, we know that the sacrifices all performed an important role uh, in the time before Christ came and they all, they all pointed to Christ. But we thank you that, that we can look back now and, uh, with the eyes of faith and know that, that those sacrifices spoke of the Christ and we know that his name is Jesus and that he is better than anything that the world can offer and anything that any religion can offer. Please help us, Lord, to be people of faith in the person of Christ. Help us to keep looking under Jesus. We pray in his precious name. Amen. Well, could you turn on your hymn books, please?